3 and Titus chapter 2, actually. Titus 2, at verse 1, we begin reading through chapter 3, verse 8. I invite you to notice how much the Apostle Paul speaks to Titus about good works, the life of obedience, doing what pleases God. Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete to set things in order there, and apparently those living on the island need to be exhorted not to give way to frivolous island living, but to be devoted to the Lord, reminded of their calling to be devoted to the Lord, and so he speaks about that a great deal here. We're looking at this this morning in connection with the Lord's Day 24, the Catechism, that talks about good works. If we're saved by grace alone, then why should we do good works? And we'll read here at Titus 2, verse 1, the word of the Lord. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness And love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works 
These things are good and profitable to men. We end the scripture reading there and turn in the Forms and Prayers book to our confession, our summary of the Word of God, page 225 in the Forms and Prayers book, page 225. In the previous Lord said we confess that we're righteous not by anything we do, but only by what Christ has done. And then on page 225, question and answer 62 reads, Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect, and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. And then turning the page, question 63, how can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? The answer is simple. The reward is not merited, not earned. It is a gift of grace. And finally, but doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. The truth that the church confesses. Let's bow in silent in a prayer together and ask for God's help and blessing. Father in heaven, we praise you that you overcome the lies of the evil one with the truth of your word. We know the devil prowls about. We may feel safe, but we're not safe in ourselves. Our old nature loves the lie. We ask then that he who is the way, the truth, and the life would be present with us today to speak his word, to drive us from the lies to lead us into the presence of our gracious and holy God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, boys and girls, I'd like you to remember three words this morning. Just three words, and I think, boys and girls, that you can memorize a lot more than that. So you memorize your Bible verses and all of that. But three words, three words this morning that you should remember from the passage we read. What are those three words? Well, let me first ask your parents, what, what three words can move any worship service from dull and dreary to vibrant and heartfelt? What three words should humble our proud hearts and lift us up with thanksgiving? What three words should make us eager to serve the Lord with gladness? Let me submit to you the three words of Titus 3 verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. Those words have the power to transform every worship service, every day of our lives. He saved us. Sometimes we, we try to add our name to the subject line to say he and we saved us, and that's wrong. Sometimes we go about our service and we try to, to reverse the order and say that we save God, we help him out, and that's wrong. Sometimes we try to distance ourselves from the world and we like to say we save them. But the gospel is this, that he saved us, Titus 3 verse 5. 
The apostle says very clearly that we ourselves were once the same thing as the world, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving our lusts. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, he saved us, not by our works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now, last Sunday night, we, we looked at the, the sin center part of that, the heart of the gospel. He saved us. It's justification in Christ alone, by grace alone, received by faith alone. The most important question we can ask in life is, is how can I, a guilty sinner, be made right with God? And the answer of the gospel is, well, there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God, but he saved you. He provided the righteousness of Christ for you. This was the great issue of the Protestant Reformation, right? I mentioned last Sunday night that the two biggest issues that caused the church to divide in the 1500s, the one issue being the, the authority. How do we know anything? What's our our source of authority, and the Reformer said, sola scriptura, scripture alone is the ultimate authority above the word of, of men, popes, councils, confessions. And then out of that, looking to the word, how are we saved? And the Reformer said, we're justified by faith alone and not by our works. Justification, just to remind you if you, if you weren't here Sunday night, justification is the legal pronouncement that we're righteous. It's God the judge. If you if you were on trial in court, uh, accused of a crime, then, then you're interested in the trial, but you're really interested in the verdict. What will the judge say? What will the jury say? Guilty or not guilty? What will the verdict be? Well, the verdict over our lives as sinners was guilty, worthy of hell, worthy of damnation. But God sent his son to do two things. One, to take away all of our guilt by dying in our place, and and two, to keep all the commandments for us. We speak of the, the passive obedience of Christ, that he suffered the curse on our sin. And we speak of the active obedience of Christ, that he kept all the requirements of the law for us. And so that righteousness is given to us as our own. We receive it by faith. And so God, on that basis of Christ's righteousness, declares to us, you are forgiven. You are righteous. You are innocent. You're accepted by me. You are adopted by me as my children. That's the wonder of justification. But then the question, if it's all of God and he saved us, then does it matter how I live? It's all of his grace then do I need to do good? Do I need to worry about obeying the law? If I'm living on the island of Crete, can I just enjoy myself? Can't we just sit on the beach? Can't we just have lots of parties? If he saved us, what's the place of good works? Well, this morning we see that the place of good works is in the realm of that he saved us. First of all, we're to honor the perfect righteousness of Christ. Secondly, we are to honor the power of Christ's renewal. In other words, those are our two points this morning, but the point is this. We're looking at justification and sanctification as the twofold benefit of Christ's saving work. He saved us. He saved us is not just justification. It's also 
sanctification. Remember the song we sing sometimes, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And we sing that, let the water and the blood from his riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Right? Wash from sin and make me pure. I think the newer one says something to the effect of taking away our guilt, the guilt of, of sin and the power of sin. So we're talking about that twofold benefit. First of all, we're to honor Christ's finished work, his perfect righteousness. Question 62 of the Catechism is quite insulting, and it's not to be blamed on the author of the Catechism, it's to be blamed on me and on you, because it's our question, question 62, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness? And that question is insulting, because it's not just an honest inquiry, it is the objection of our heart. When we hear salvation is all of grace, then the, the proud nature of man says, what about what I've done? Doesn't it count for something? But it insults Christ. We just confessed in the previous Lord's Day that God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction of righteousness and holiness of Christ. If God grants to me the perfect righteousness of Christ, why am I not satisfied with that? Is something lacking what Christ did? Maybe you've had a job or performed a duty sometime and Somebody keeps coming behind you to redo it. You're washing tables, and you wash your tables, and then they come behind you. He starts washing them again. Or you're pulling out weeds, and then then she comes behind you and and does your work over again. And, And when that's happening, you might be humbled by it, or you might be angry by it. But whatever the case, you know one thing. You know that by them doing it again, they are saying about you, you didn't do it perfect. Now, if we come behind Jesus and try to add some of our own goodness to make us acceptable to God, what are we saying about the work of Jesus? God's not going to allow us to rob Christ of the glory that belongs to him. God said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He saved us. And the... The praise that echoes through eternity is worthy of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to redeem us. He saved us. 1 Corinthians 1, as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Or Paul says in Galatians 6, Let me boast of nothing else but in the cross of Christ. There's nothing to be added to the finished work of Jesus, to his atoning death. There's, There's no supplement needed for the righteousness of Christ. Some of you have supplemental insurance policies. Well, you can't get a supplemental for the gospel. It's unnecessary. By raising Christ from the dead, God was testifying that Jesus paid the full price. And by lifting Christ, the head of the church, into heaven, as Christ in our human nature went through the gates of glory, as he received entrance, he revealed that he had paid the full mission price. We are now in heaven. Our flesh is there. It means God's wrath is satisfied. The righteousness is full and complete. Nothing else is needed. Why would we insult our Savior by putting hope in our own good works when Christ has done it all perfectly? But our proud nature does that, doesn't it? We we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But while we have our hands out there saying that, you know, we're actually 
are actually each an octopus. You've got six more arms that are with those tentacles grabbing onto other things. Nothing in my hands I bring. But yeah, I do work pretty hard. I work really hard. Or another man says, but you know, I don't overwork. I always spend time with my family. And a lady says, well, I keep my house very clean. Another one says, well, I don't get worked up over little things. I love my children. Don't get mad about dirty shoes. And someone else says, well, I'm a very kind person. Everyone says so. And someone else says, well, I always speak the truth. I, I'm not moved by emotion and sentimentalism. I love the truth. But we all got these arms trying to hang on to other things. Nothing in my hands I bring. And we have to turn and look at all those other arms that are grasping and grasping Things that we take a little pride in, things that we want to bring before God, things that we say, well, why can't, I mean, I know I'm not saved by my works, but they must help a little. Surely God's a little pleased with me for all that I've done. But you see, nothing needs to be added to the perfect righteousness of Christ given to us. But here's the other thing, nothing can be added Because all of our works are defiled by sin. Right? So we answer in answer 62. The righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect in every way measuring up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are imperfect and stain with sin. Now our good works are accepted to God in the realm of grace, in the realm of he saved us, then we bring our obedience to God and it's washed by the blood of Christ, it's sanctified by a spirit, it's received as a sacrifice pleasing to God, but only because it's through the mediation of he saved us. But if you get out of the realm of grace and you want to stand in the realm of merit, where justification applies, and you want to bring forward your good works into the courtroom of God and say, here, here's the payment, then God says, then we're not using the standard of grace We're using the strict standard of the law and your works must be perfect or they're thrown out of the courtroom. God says, what do you bring me that's perfect? That can stand on its own apart from Christ's merit. We haven't a thing to bring him. I think our next door neighbors might be surprised by this because maybe this morning as we we drive out of the driveway and go to church and they see us dressed up, they may think that we think that by doing this, We're earning points with God. They may think that we think we're doing something really good that that merits God's favor. And what they don't know is that we believe that we need to be forgiven for going to church. That if our going to church was judged by strict justice, we would go to hell for going to church. Because our going to church was not with our whole heart. Our going to church was not with perfect love for God. Our going to church was not without selfishness inside of us. We need to be forgiven not just of our worst works. We need to be forgiven of our best works. We need to be forgiven of our prayers. For our selfishness and self-seeking kingdom. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ. Because we have nothing to bring. Everything we do is tainted by sin. If that wasn't true, then God would not have sent his son. If our good works could merit 
then why would God have ever sent his son? You know what he would have said to you? He'd say, I'm just going to make you serve me for 10 million years and you can pay your own way. No, we couldn't meet the standard of God's justice. You know, on the cross, Jesus wasn't judged by some wavering standard. He was judged by God's perfect law. The full force, the full strictness of God's justice met Jesus at the cross. And he paid the price for all of our tainted works, all of our sinfulness, the whole curse. And so we're not to belittle the work of Jesus, but we're to give him glory by resting in him, knowing that that our righteousness before God, we don't contribute a single crumb. We, we, in terms of our righteousness before God, we don't pay 1% or 100th of 1% or 1 millionth of 1% or 1 trillionth of 1%. We contribute nothing. He saved us. He saved us. He made us righteous in Christ. And that brings a rich comfort to the life of the believer Because then we know that our standing before God does not rest upon the degree of holiness that we've achieved in this life. That that God's favor isn't based upon whether I've lived well or not. That that, that God's acceptance of me doesn't depend on, on how much I've grown in holiness. The firmness of our acceptance in God's eyes is based squarely on Christ. And if it wasn't, we'd be insecure at all time. We'd always be wondering, have we done enough? But fixed on Christ's righteousness, then the house is built on a solid rock. And it can stand firm when the storms come. Nothing can take away our righteousness before God's eyes. Some of you might know the name of Joel Bells. He was the founder of World Magazine, this uh, Christian news magazine some of you have read. He passed away recently, and so this... This uh, issue that just came out has a, well, his face is on the cover, has a tribute to Joel Bells. He was a man very, very energetic for the kingdom of the Lord. He served with, um, on the board at a Christian college, and he served in Christian journalism and all kinds of stuff, lived a full life. But I was reading the, the biographical tribute to him in the magazine, and it ends with these words. Joel's family says he struggled in his last days with remorse And what ifs? He wondered if he had been the man God wanted him to be. He wondered if he had done what God wanted him to do. So that's interesting. But then it says, but in the midst of the spiritual warfare, with his faculties failing, Joel cried out with conviction the truth that had seen him through life and would now see him through death. He preached the gospel to himself. He said, I believe, I believe. You know, every one of us as we grow older will look back with some regrets, right? Was I the parent I should have been? Was my body was healthy? Did I serve the Lord as wholeheartedly as I should have? And maybe upon our deathbed we'll, we'll experience the same thing that Mr. Bells did. Looking back and wondering. But what's the comfort for the believer? Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Verse 7, having been justified by grace, not works, 
We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As I read that article about Joel Bells, I was reminded of another story of uh, J. Gresham Machen. Some of you might know that name. I hope you do. He, he was uh, instrumental in the beginning of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, when they broke away from um, the main Presbyterian Church for its liberalism and so forth. And he was the uh, founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, he was a pastor, a seminary professor, and he was very valiant for the truth. Actually, you probably heard his name in the past year because it was the 100th anniversary of the publication of his book, Christianity and Liberalism, which is a wonderful and always relevant book. But there's a story of Machen. He dies at 55 years of age. He, during Christmas break at Westminster, went out to North Dakota, from Philadelphia to North Dakota, and uh, to do some speaking engagements at churches. He was met by 20 below zero degree weather in Bismarck and and he went there somewhat sick and he got sicker while he was there and before he could leave North Dakota to get back to Philadelphia to the seminary he's in the hospital with pneumonia and he's becoming unconscious and he has moments of alertness and his last words were a telegram which he sent to his colleague Professor John Murray back at the seminary and it read I am so thankful For the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He'd been talking with Professor Murray, the systematic uh, theology fellow, about the the passive obedience and the active obedience to Christ, that Christ keeps all the requirements of the law for us. And, And Machen, even when he got sick, was saying, I can't die yet, I have so much to do. But on his deathbed, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. He's done it all for me. He's kept all the requirements. No hope without that. Will that be your comfort in your dying hours when you think of all you've left undone, everything you didn't do perfectly, everything that you regret and wish you had given more of your heart to? I thank God that Christ has done it all for me. He achieved everything. If my entrance into heaven depended on me having run the perfect race, then I'm doomed So much left undone and so much impurity. But thanks be to God that Christ completed everything for me. Credits to me his perfect obedience. And I have an entry into heaven. He saved us. But what about our good works then? They don't contribute. Should we bother even trying? Well, notice, secondly, this morning, not only are we to honor that perfect righteousness of Christ by not trying to add to it, we are to honor the power of Christ's Spirit who has renewed us to new life. Boys and girls, have you ever gotten a gift that actually was two boxes wrapped and with like a ribbon holding them together? And it's always interesting when you get that kind of gift, right? You usually get one box, but when you see two different boxes wrapped and put together with a, a ribbon around it, you think, well, it's a, is it two gifts? Is it a two-part gift? Do these two things go together? Well, he saved us is a two-part gift. It's not only our justification that we're declared righteous and accepted by God, but it's also sanctification that we're set apart from sin, that our hearts are reborn and renewed to live for God. Question 64 of the Catechism 
comes right out of the 1500s. It says about this justification by grace alone. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? And that was the favorite Roman Catholic objection to justification by grace alone through faith alone. And they said, if you teach people that it's all a gift, it's all what Christ does, that their standing before God does not depend at all on what they do, then how do you think they're going to live? No one's going to show up for work. They're just going to say, if I have a free ticket to heaven, I'm going to do whatever I please. It's actually not just a 1500, 16th century objection. It was the objection the Apostle Paul met, right? In Romans uh, 6, he says, what shall we say then? He just said that, that grace is greater than all our sin. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? It's an interesting objection, isn't it? Before we answer it, we might point out that the objection might actually be a good sign. Someone said that if, that if a preacher is never accused of preaching too much grace, if no one ever says he, he makes it too easy, then maybe he's not preaching the true gospel. But what is the answer to the objection? Well, the answer is found in Titus chapter 3. He saved us is not only verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But he saved us is also the second half of verse 5, that he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So he saved us means we get a new record before the law of God, we're righteous. But he saved us is also that we get a new heart. We're born again, we're regenerated, we're sanctified and set apart from sin to live for God. John Calvin was a great gift to the church of Jesus Christ. He was... Incomparable in his understanding of God's word, really. And he, as he passed through Geneva, was compelled by William Farrell, who had been laboring there as a pastor, who had brought about reformation there. The city of Geneva, had, it had thrown out the Roman Catholics. Priests and monks, they, they left. Geneva took over the monasteries and so forth. They claimed the city for the reformation. And Calvin, when he passed through, was compelled to stay and help that Reformation cause. But at some point in Geneva, the town fathers got upset with him, and they exiled him and sent him away. And while he was away, the Roman Catholics made a play for Geneva, Switzerland. They wanted to get back in there. And so they, they had Cardinal Satellet write a letter to the Genevans trying to argue that Roman Catholicism was right. They should throw out the Reformation teaching. And you know what the Genevans did? They sent Cardinal Satelletto's letter to Calvin, who'd been exiled from the city, and they asked him to reply to the cardinal. And Calvin said, well, because I love the Lord's truth and I love you Genevans, I will do that. And he wrote. And he wrote to Cardinal Satellet saying that the first and keenest subject of controversy between us is justification. 
Wherever that's taken away, justification by faith alone, the glory of Christ is extinguished, and the church is destroyed, and the hope of salvation is overthrown. But then he wrote this to the cardinal. He said, but you very maliciously stir up prejudice against us, alleging that by attributing everything to faith, we leave no room for works. And then Calvin wrote, we deny that good works have any share in justification, but we claim full authority for them in the lives of the righteous. Well, how can that be? Calvin writes, for if he who has obtained justification possesses Christ, and at the same time Christ never is where his spirit is not, it is obvious that gracious righteousness is necessarily connected with regeneration. Therefore, if you would unduly understand how inseparable faith and works are, look to Christ, who, as the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 1.30, has been given to us for justification and sanctification. There you go. Calvin understood Titus chapter 3, the twofold benefit of Christ's saving work, justification and sanctification. Justification, it's all about My standing before God and acceptance is all on Christ's righteousness. But anybody that has faith to receive Christ as righteousness gets the whole Christ and all his benefit. Anyone who has faith to believe in Jesus has faith from a new heart. The Spirit has given him a new heart that hates sin and loves God. So the answer is this. If you proclaim they're saved freely by grace, won't they just live like the devil? And the answer is, that's impossible. Anyone who has Christ's righteousness has also been given a new heart. And that heart loves the Father and wants to serve the Father and delights in the Father. You know, it's actually just the opposite. What were the Roman Catholics teaching? That by holding over God's people fear that you don't know if you're going to make it to heaven... And you've got to keep trying and doing more work. They thought that would be the motivation to produce good works. Well, that never produces good works. That produces mercenaries. Paid, hired. Is that the kind of service God seeks? Does he seek the service of slaves who are feared getting beaten? Or does he seek the service of children who serve him because they love him? The only good work we ever do is when it comes out of a heart that knows, I am forgiven. God loves me. I stand righteous in Christ. And in gratitude for all of that, I can't help but serve my God. You see what Paul says in Titus 3, we were just like the world. We were slaves to our lust, but the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared And he saved us not because of our works of righteousness, but according to his mercy. And he saved us by washing our hearts and renewing us by the Spirit so we could live for him. If you understand that, then you understand why James says that we're saved. Excuse me. James says we're justified by works. And some have struggled with that. Paul says we're justified by grace, justified by faith, not by works. James says we're justified by works. Well, They're using the word justified in different ways. Paul's speaking of of our legal standing before God. 
James is saying we're justified, not in the sense of being declared righteous, but we're justified in the sense of our faith is being proven by its works. And so James says in chapter 2, verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See James' point. He's not saying that we're not justified by faith, but he's saying that your faith must be revealed in works. If you have no works, your faith is dead. And you're not justified then. True faith brings forth works. And it glorifies God. Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Your good works glorify your God because they show the power of his spirit within you that's given you a new heart. Remember on Mount Carmel, Elijah summoned the prophets of Baal. And he said, you build an altar to your God. I'll build an altar to the Lord. You call on your God, I'll call on my God. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. When we see power from God, then we know who God is. The famous 19th century English London preacher Charles Spurgeon was once debating with an agnostic. And this unbeliever was was challenging the things Spurgeon believed. So Spurgeon said, well, let's look at this. Let's look at your unbelieving organizations. What good have they done for anyone? And then let's look at the works of Christian organizations. And Spurgeon himself had been instrumental in starting orphanages for the, the orphans of London. And then Spurgeon said, the God who answers by orphanages, he is God. You see it? Good works don't merit anything, but they do show the power and wonder of the God who works in his people and makes them to live for him. We disagree with the Roman Catholics. Grace doesn't make us careless Christians, but we do believe this, that we don't always ponder the grace of justification as we ought to be as thankful as we should be. Paul says in Titus 2.11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously, looking for the appearing of our Savior. He, he's redeemed us to be zealous for good works. But then Paul says, though Christ redeemed us to be zealous for good works, in Titus 3 verse 8, tells Titus to urge the believers to be careful to maintain good works. We are not always so motivated as we ought to be to serve the Lord because we're not always so thankful as we ought to be for what God has done for us. We need reminders. We need helps. But in the end, the Christian life is markedly different from the unbelieving life. The Christian rejoicing in grace, grace, he saved me, doesn't go on to live like the devil. He lives like a child, the daughter of God. How can I please my Lord and Master? I love him. Told you of Machen's death. His biographer and friend Ned Stonehouse says that the death of this 
untimely death of Machen grieved his colleagues and friends and overwhelmed with sorrow. But he says they rejoiced in his life that was so devoted to the Lord. And then Ned, ha- Ned Stonehouse concludes this biography of Machen, 500-page biography, with these words. He says, may these pages help to arouse in a generation that did not know him a bright vision of the significance of a life, Machen's life, that came to be marked by steadfast faith in the crucified one, justification, and by complete, by complete abandon and commitment to the service of God, sanctification. And then he writes, as his favorite hymn expresses it, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's bow before our Savior. O gracious God in heaven, you have saved us. We thank you for saving us from the guilt of our sin and from sin's power. Father, may our lives be filled with the good fruit of union with Jesus Christ, his life flowing in us. We may bring forth good fruit to the glory of our God. Help us to come to the cross with truly empty hands, depending on nothing in ourselves. But help us to go forward in the power of the cross, by the power of the Spirit to live for you. God, we praise you for your grace to us. We thank you for the recovery of truth in the era of the Reformation. We thank you for your abiding word. And we thank you, Lord, for grace. Help us to believe it. Help us to preach it. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.